Chapter 26 of Catherine von Bora, Dr. Martin Luther's Wife by Armin Stein, translated by E.A. Enlich. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26, War. Evil times are at hand, Luther often said, and the great man had scarcely closed his eyes when the storm burst. It had long been evident to discerning eyes that the Emperor Charles V was only seeking a convenient pretext for destroying with the sword the fruits of Luther's labors. Realizing their danger, the Protestant princes and cities had formed the Union of Smalcald, and their defensive measures stirred the Emperor's wrath to a still fiercer glow. He was playing a double game, false alike toward the Protestants and the Pope. He sought merely to strengthen his own power in an empire to whose very language he was a stranger. Having, by means of specious promises, gained the Pope for his purposes, he sought aid in Germany itself for the war of extermination. The Duke of Bavaria was speedily won by the promise of the elector's hat. Other, smaller potentates were lured with smaller bribes. Even in the camp of the Protestant princes, to their shame be it said, the emperor found allies. Hans, Margrave of Kustrin, and Eric, Duke of Brunswick-Kallenberg, were not ashamed to wear the imperial colors. Not content with these acquisitions, the emperor coveted the alliance of the young and ambitious Duke Moritz of Saxony, to gain whose goodwill he encouraged the quarrel between the young duke and his cousin, the elector John Frederick of Saxony. For the Judas reward of the Saxon electorate, Duke Moritz betrayed the Protestant faith. Having secured these confederates, the emperor openly continued his preparations. To the questions of the allies as to his intentions, he scornfully replied that his purpose was to chastise certain unruly German princes who, under the guise of religion, cast contempt upon the imperial majesty. It became necessary, therefore, to devise a plan by which the chastisement designed for themselves might rather fall upon the emperor's back. The affairs of the Protestants wore a promising aspect. In Upper Germany, an army of 47,000 men was speedily organized under the valiant general Schartland, and it would have been an easy matter to capture the emperor, who, with 9,000 men, lay before Ratisbon. Chartland urged immediate action, but an ill-timed sentiment of delicacy, which forbade the Allies to enter the territory of the neutral Duke of Bavaria, caused them to hesitate. Their indecision gave the Emperor time to reinforce his army and courage to put the Elector of Saxony and the Landgrave of Hesse under the ban of the Empire. Uniting their forces with those under Chartland, the two outlawed princes advanced upon the Imperial Army. Much had been lost, but the emperor might still have succumbed to the superior strength of the Protestants. Again, their hesitation and indecision came to his aid. Winter set in. Moritz had gained time to occupy the Saxon territory and to install himself as the new sovereign. There was nothing left for the elector but to return in haste and reconquer his electorate. Chartland's army ran short of provisions. The free cities, losing courage, submitted, one by one, to the emperor, who in the beginning of 1547 found himself master of the whole of southern Germany. Shortly after, the Rhenish provinces were lost to Protestantism. Then the tide turned. There was great rejoicing in the Saxon land. The streets were thronged with people. Cannon thundered from the ramparts. Bells rang. Flags streamed from the church towers. And eager enthusiasm spread from village to village, from town to town. The elector, outlawed by the emperor, robbed of his sovereignty, had returned to his devoted subjects. Their love was his triumphal chariot. 
his sword and buckler, the banner under which he not only recovered his own inheritance, but conquered a goodly portion of his ambitious cousin's territory. John Frederick of Saxony, whose destruction had been planned, rose to a higher pinnacle of power than he had ever before occupied. The emperor trembled with fear and anxiety, and the knowledge that his infamous transaction with Duke Moritz stood revealed before the eyes of all Germany broke the last remnant of his courage. He considered his cause well-nigh lost, and despair seized upon his mind. Already it was rumored that the Bohemians had joined the elector. If this were true, then all hope was at an end. Fortunately for him, however, and unfortunately for the elector, the Bohemians maintained an inexplicable inactivity, allowing their advantages to slip from their grasp, and suffering the imperial troops to escape from Bohemia and to follow in the wake of the elector who, with an army of 9,000 men, was encamped at Mulberg on the Elba, fearing no evil and deeming the burning of the Elba Bridge a sufficient security against surprises. But the burning of the bridges was of little use when treachery guided the enemy to a ford which made a bridge unnecessary. The name of the Miller Strouch is for all time branded with infamy. Out of revenge for the loss of his horses, which the Saxon troopers had carried off, he betrayed his sovereign and his country. It was a still peaceful morning on the Sunday, Cosimodo Geniti, April 24, 1547. The good elector was sitting in church, devoutly listening to the preaching of the gospel, when suddenly the noise of a wild tumult broke in upon his devotions. It was the enemy. The soldiers ran hither and thither in utter confusion. The officers' commands were unheeded. They all fled wildly toward the heath of Lokau. The elector succeeded in rallying a few of the panic-stricken cavalry regiments to cover their retreat, but no valor was able to withstand the enemy's superior forces. The Saxon army was cut to pieces and scattered, and the elector, heroically defending himself, was disabled by a saber cut in his face. A look of despair came into his eyes as he surrendered. Suddenly, a loud thunderclap was heard, startling all by its unseasonable and unexpected occurrence. But into the elector's face there came a new light, and with a loud voice he exclaimed, Yes, thou mighty God, thou makest thyself to be heard. Thou still livest and doest all things well. Dragged by the Hungarian horsemen into the emperor's presence, he was received with a look of mingled joy, anger, and contempt. The elector John Frederick Saxony was a prisoner in the hands of the man who had threatened to destroy Protestantism, root and branch, and his electorate was irretrievably lost to him and his race. Wittenberg was in dire confusion. The emperor was coming, preceded by the rumor that the city of the arch-heretic was to be made to feel the full weight of his displeasure and was to disappear from the face of the earth as unworthy of being shone upon by the sun. The citizens, and among them the widow of the arch-heretic, prepared to fly. In December of the past year, she had been obliged to seek an asylum at Magdenburg when Duke Moritz advanced upon Wittenberg and besieged the citadel. But the elector had hastened to the relief of the city and recalled the fugitives. Now she must once more bid farewell to her home, perhaps never to return, for between the elector's captivity and the emperor's threat, Wittenberg had small hope of escaping. Their flight was attended with many hindrances and difficulties. In the general disorder, each one was concerned only for his own safety. After much persuasion, a teamster was found willing to give the widow and her children a place upon his cart. 
He drove in mad haste over the rough roads, belaboring the poor animals with furious blows and urging them forward as though the enemy were already at his heels. For hours, the wild chase lasted and night was at hand. The road was uphill, rough and stony, and suddenly the exhausted horses refused to proceed. The teamster, beside himself with rage and fear, forced them on with more blows when one of the horses, uttering a short, piteous cry, dropped dead. Then he fell to berating the poor beasts, the emperor, and finally his passengers, whose weight, he asserted, had overtaxed the horse's strength. Without a word, Catherine and her children climbed down from the cart, and the teamster went on his way. The widow stood under the open sky, beside her a large chest containing her most necessary possessions. Not a human being was to be seen near and far. The sky was hung with heavy clouds, and a soft rain was beginning to fall. It was impossible to spend the night in the open air. For a moment, Catherine hesitated. Then she beckoned to her sons. They broke open the chest. She gave to each one as much as he could carry, and comforting the frightened children, she said, Let us go in God's name. We are everywhere in his keeping. He will not forsake us. They walked rapidly, and half an hour later, a light shining through the darkness showed them the way to the habitations of men. They soon reached a village, and the first door at which they knocked was hospitably open to receive them. "'Good heavens, Mistress Luther, is it you?' exclaimed a voice from a corner of the dimly lighted room as they entered. "'Master Philip!' cried Catherine and the children, equally surprised. It was Philip Melanchthon, her husband's dearest friend, whom a similar accident— his wagon, having been overturned in a ditch, had driven to seek shelter in the village. The kind peasants, to whom these exclamations betrayed the identity of their guests, could not sufficiently express their reverent affection. The contents of the larder were produced for their refreshment. The beds of the family, in spite of all their protestations, were given up to the strangers, and on the following morning, before sunrise, the peasant was at the door with his own cart, prepared to carry them to their journey's end. The Lord's Chancery, said Melanchthon, as they entered Magdenburg through the gloomy gate of the fortress. Your dear husband often gave the city that name. Who would then have thought that we should one day come hither to seek safety from persecution? But I thank God that in these troublous times he has provided for us a place of refuge. Catherine founded Magdeburg, a number of her friends and acquaintances from Wittenberg, among others the professor of theology, George Major, a dear friend of her departed husband. It was to him she now chiefly looked for protection, as Melanchthon, having upon his hands the care of many other fugitives, was very much engaged. Here, too, the people, for Luther's sake, received his wife and children with open arms. A senator, in whose house they lodged, made every effort to keep his guests with him permanently. With touching kindness, he and his wife urged Catherine to regard their roomy house as the home of herself and her children, and, not knowing whether she would ever be able to return to Wittenberg, she finally yielded to their pleading, but she had scarcely consented when the dreadful tidings were brought them that the emperor threatened to put the city under the ban of the empire for harboring the Wittenberg fugitives, and the hearts, which had bounded with renewed hopefulness, sank back again into deeper gloom. Catherine passed the night in sleepless anxiety, struggling for light. Whither should she go? Was there not in God's wide world a spot where the widow of the German reformer might lay her head? Early in the morning, she sought Professor Major, whom she found in deep dejection. My dear Professor, said Catherine, offering her hand, it is clear that we cannot continue in Magdeburg. A plan came to me during the night, and I would ask your assistance in carrying it out. 
Alas, yes, Major interrupted. We must leave this hospitable place and our kind friends. Hear me, continued Catherine. We will never find peace within the territories of the Emperor Charles. His threats will ever follow at our heels. Therefore, I think it were best for us to go whither his arm cannot reach us. What do you mean, Mistress Luther? asked the professor with wide open, startled eyes. It is a long distance which I propose to travel, said Catherine, but I do not shrink from it, and the end will reward our labor. I desire to go to Denmark, where under the rule of King Christian the gospel is preached without hindrance. I will go to the champion of the Protestant confession. He has kept faith with Dr. Martin, and I feel sure that he will take pity on his widow. The professor listened with growing astonishment, and when she had finished, said, I approve of your plan, dear Mistress Luther, and wish you a happy journey. With a somewhat embarrassed smile, Catherine looked at him. But I have a request to add. A helpless woman cannot alone undertake so arduous a journey, and I would pray you to make this further sacrifice and accompany me. For a moment, the professor hesitated, then cheerfully replied, It shall be as you wish, dear Mistress Luther. On the following morning, a wagon covered with sailcloth stood at the senator's door to carry away his guests. The journey proceeded safely until they reached Brunswick. Here they were detained by the friendliness and solicitude of the Senate of the city, who endeavored to dissuade Catherine from her purpose and to comfort her with the hope of better times. But she was resolved and merely urged to greater haste. From Brunswick, they traveled in a hired wagon. On the way, they encountered frequent troops of lansquenets, and the professor's face grew serious when he observed the imperial colors. Catherine was alarmed and begged the driver to hurry toward the village of Gifhorn, visible in the distance. But as they neared the village, the troops became more numerous, and the place itself was thronged with soldiers and camp followers, so that the travelers were scarcely able to advance. It was still more difficult to find a lodging, in spite of the professor's untiring efforts. The end of their journey, which had seemed so near, was lost in the distance, vague and unattainable. After a bitter struggle, Catherine abandoned her cherished hope, and on the evening of this day said to her protector, I cannot endure that you should have so much toil and trouble in my behalf. Let us turn back. It is too dangerous, and I fear it will be impossible to reach Denmark. Professor Major nodded sadly. I do it willingly, for God's sake, yet I think it is his will that we turn back. And so they did the next morning, not knowing whither to go. Toward noon, they halted at an inn to buy food. In the guest's room sat an elderly man with a piece of bread and cheese before him. From his appearance, they recognized him as a traveling merchant. After the customary greetings, it was discovered that he came from Torgau and was able to give them tidings of Wittenberg. The city fared better than any dared hope, he related, after the reports which preceded the emperor that the hotbed of heresy would be made to feel the full measure of his vengeance, but he dealt with it in a merciful and truly royal manner. He had been a traitor, had he done otherwise, for a promise must needs be kept, especially an emperor's promise. What do you mean? asked the professor. Are you perhaps acquainted with Lucas Cronach, the elector's court painter? continued the other. How should we not know him? exclaimed both his hearers. It was he who saved the city. He went to the imperial headquarters and, forcing his way past the guards, walked boldly to the emperor's tent. Then, in all humility, yet confidently, he reminded his majesty of a promise he had once made to the painter. I cannot tell what it was, but the result was that the emperor dealt beyond expectation gently with the city of Wittenberg. I understand, cried the professor. 
Cronach once related to me how many years ago he had met the present Emperor Charles V when he was still a boy. If I am not mistaken, Cronach was sent by the Elector Frederick the Wise as ambassador to Mechlin in the Low Countries, where the Emperor Maximilian was at that time holding his court. On this occasion, the Emperor caused his portrait to be painted by the distinguished artist, and the young Prince Charles, already destined to wear the imperial crown of Germany, also desired to sit for his picture. He made many promises to Master Cranach that he would be patient and sit still, but the unruly boy gave the artist much trouble by his restlessness. Yet the portrait succeeded admirably, and in his childish delight, pressing Cranach's hand, the prince said to him, Master Lucas, when I am a sovereign like my uncle, and you have a favor to ask of me, it shall be granted. Here is my hand upon it. And now it seems, after so many years, he was able to claim his promise of the emperor. Cranach is a noble man. For himself he asks nothing, only for others. Herein he resembles him who counted him among his friends, the blessed Dr. Martin. Deeply moved, the merchant dried his eyes. Yes, he is truly a great and noble man, who thus forgets himself. I have been further told that the emperor received him very graciously, and made him the most brilliant offers if he would enter the imperial service as court painter. But Cranach gratefully declined his proposals, requesting instead that his majesty deal generously with his captive sovereign, John Frederick of Saxony, as befitted the victor. Cranach said that as he had received many kindnesses and benefits from his gracious master, he therefore would fain show his gratitude and do what in him lay to ease the prisoner's hard lot. Catherine listened with brimming eyes. The professor was deeply touched, and a long silence followed the merchant's tale. Then Catherine, turning to him, said, The city was indeed spared, but if further care presses upon me, I would know the fate of... She did not finish the sentence. Her eyes anxiously questioned the merchant's face. Be comforted, dear Mistress Luther, he replied. The Duke of Alva, with his face of parchment and his heart of stone, vehemently urged the emperor to have the arch-heretic's ashes scattered to the winds. But his majesty angrily replied, I make war upon the living, not upon the dead. He even forbade his soldiers to disturb the Lutheran worship. Bugenhagen preached the gospel unhindered in the presence of many Spanish soldiers, and one day he even observed the emperor himself among his hearers. Catherine breathed a sigh of relief and warmly thanked the bearer of such good tidings. Three days later, a woman with her four children knelt at Luther's grave in the castle church at Wittenberg, and with many tears gave thanks that this sacred spot remained undesecrated. It was her first errand. Afterwards, she returned to her home in the Augustinian convent. A dreary sight here met her eyes. The emperor's orders had not extended to Luther's dwelling, and the spot where the arch-heretic had lived became the scene of savage destruction and of the brutal revenge of the Spanish soldiery. The household furniture was broken, the cellars robbed of their contents, and the walls soiled with foul doggerel. The children lamented, but Catherine, silently, went about to establish a new home upon the ruins of the old. End of chapter 26